Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we ask, God, that we would see these living, powerful qualities in your word, that the word would come to life in our lives, Lord, that we wouldn't just look at this as an ancient story, but we would see this as an actual historical event that still affects us today. And I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you would teach us whatever you want to teach us. In your name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, um, David's been getting a, a lot of attention, right? The, the big hit song, the number one top spot best song in the nation of Israel right now is what? <laughs> David, Saul's kills his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So this is producing a lot of jealousy in Saul, so much so that he's out to kill David. He's thrown spears several times. Then we see in 1 Samuel chapter 19, he really goes after him, so much so that David must flee. He has to literally run away. Luckily, he had some faithful friends who warned him that Saul was going to come out to kill him. Uh, he had his wife, Michal. He also had Jonathan, uh, his faithful friend who showed him, revealed to him that David, sorry, that Saul was out to kill David. In this chapter specifically, we're going to see this encounter once again with David and Jonathan. We're going to continue to see Jonathan's faithfulness towards David. And it's really rooted back in the covenant that they initially made back in 1 Samuel chapter 18 after David killed Goliath. This, what's, this is what this whole chapter revolves around. So let's look back at it. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him in that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So this chapter really revolves around that covenant, and we're going to see that covenant continue to develop. We're going to see it um kind of defined a little bit better specifically in 1 Samuel chapter 20, but we're also going to see this covenant get tested. But in the midst of this covenant being tested, we will see this covenant confirmed. And that's the title of this teaching, A Covenant Confirmed. A Covenant Confirmed. Jonathan will prove to be committed to the covenant that he initially made with David back in 1 Samuel chapter 18. But when we look at this text, we can't help but see and make the connection that this directly correlates with our relationship with Jesus Christ, meaning the covenant that he's made with us and the covenant that we've made with him. I don't know if you realize this, hopefully by now you have, but when we accepted Christ, we actually entered into it to enter into a covenantal a relationship with him when we accepted christ and the sacrifice that he paid for us on the cross it wasn't just a sinner's prayer lord forgive me but we're entering into a relationship that's rooted in this covenant it's a commitment so much so that the bible likens that commitment to a marriage relationship he's the groom and we're the bride 
You can think of a sinner's prayer, if you will, as vows. That's really what it is. And we don't just say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. sins. And there's no real for, uh, real sinner's prayer in the Bible. The closest thing would be Romans chapter 9, 10, uh, 9 through 10. Uh, but we don't only say that. We, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is ultimately to trust Him. We also say things like, I, I pray that I follow you the rest of, of my days. And when you look at that relationship, us being the bride, and him being the groom, that's really what it's supposed to be about. We're supposed to honor those vows. We're supposed to respect him. We're supposed to submit to him. We're supposed to follow him, put him in the place as a spiritual leader over our lives. That's the covenant that we've made with Christ. Are we honoring our vows? Are we honoring our vows? Is it just something that we said or is it something that we're doing? Are we being a good bride? Because he's a perfect groom. He's a perfect groom. We have no reason not to be a good bride. When he makes a covenant with us, he will never turn back from that covenant. But sometimes our lives can put into question whether or not we're truly committed to that covenant. As we look at this chapter... We're going to see, as I mentioned, David and Jonathan's covenant tested, but we will absolutely see this covenant confirmed. Let's dive in, take a look. First Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? Is it not so? Then David took an oath again and said your father certainly knows that i have found favor in your eyes and he has said do not let jonathan know this lest he be grieved but truly as the lord lives and as your soul lives there is but a step between me and death so jonathan said to david whatever you yourself desire i will do it for you let's break this down a little bit Remember, David, he fled to Naoth and Ramah specifically to run to Samuel, right? Saul was after him. David did something wise. He ran to his spiritual leader. Hey, I need help. The king is out to kill me. And we see that through that, God protected him. How? Well, he protected him by pouring out his spirit on all the servants that came after David. Then finally, Saul, because he assumed that his servants couldn't get the job done, he was going to do it. So he goes after David too. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He leads him to the place of surrender. He takes off his clothes. He's worshiping God. He performs this act of surrender. Obviously his life doesn't follow that action, but David, he fled. Now he's coming back. Why is he coming back? Well, he hopes Saul isn't mad at him still. He hopes this was just an outburst of the distressing spirit. He's truly coming back to reconcile his relationship with Saul. He wants to see if that's an opportunity. And this reveals David's love for Saul. He hasn't given up on Saul, even though Saul's tried to kill him time and time again. He wants to reconcile with him. He wants to be back in relationship with him. So, David first, wisely goes to Jonathan. He ran back to the one that he made a covenant with. 
He ran back to the one that has proven time and time again to be his faithful friend. Now, he didn't know how Jonathan was going to respond in this certain circumstance. He didn't know if Jonathan had a sudden change of heart and now was on his father's side. But he did something commendable that we ought to learn from. He ran to the one he made a covenant with. When we get into trouble, especially when it's attacks from the enemy, we always ought to run to the one that we made a covenant with. Now, I'm not just talking about a faithful friend. I'm talking about the faithful friend. We always run back to Jesus. No matter what we're going through, we run back to the one that's made a covenant with us and we've made a covenant with him. We can always be safe there. That'll never be a wrong answer to run back to the one we've made a covenant with. That's exactly what David did. And he asks Jonathan, what have I done? David was being sincere. He's like, did I did do something that I don't know about? Did, did I do something to your father that, that's really worthy of me being killed? Like, what did I do? Just tell me I'll repent. I'll try to make things right. But he's also, also asking Jonathan this to see where Jonathan stands on the issue. Is Jonathan still for David or is he taking his father's side? He wants Jonathan to communicate to him and explain to him, hey, if I'm wrong, okay, I'll accept that. But I also want to know if if you think I'm wrong. Jonathan, do you think I'm wrong for what I did? We know he didn't do anything. He, He didn't do anything to Saul, especially anything worthy of being killed. So Jonathan... He stands up for his friend in verse two. He says, by no means. So he's saying, no, no, you didn't do anything. You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? Is it not so? So Jonathan, he confirms with David right off the bat that he's on his side. I'm not agreeing with my father and nothing's going to happen to you. I'll warn you if my father comes after you again, my father will tell me if he's going to plot or plan against you once more. So David starting to pick up on this because Jonathan already told David the first time he says in verse three, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David realizes that his father, Saul's father, sorry, Jonathan's father, Saul, is likely not going to tell Jonathan again because the last time he said something to Jonathan, Jonathan told David. And David realizes the significance of everything that's going on here. And he says, I'm a step, there's a step between me and death, meaning the next step that I take might be the last. Like, I'm literally walking on thin ice with your father. And if I make one wrong move in this circumstance, whether it's through this conversation or something I do after, it might cost me my life. David's a little afraid and and rightfully so. He has a man, not just any man, the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the nation, if you will, out to kill him. So Jonathan, again, reassures him in verse four that he's got his back. He says, whatever yourself Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. 
Jonathan confirmed his covenant with David through his commitment. This is point number one. Covenants are confirmed through commitment. Covenants are confirmed through commitment. Jonathan reassures him, I'm committed to you. See, we display our commitment both with our words and with our actions. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's actually both. Specifically, when we're speaking of our commitment to Christ, Christ wants us to be verbally committed to him. It says in Luke chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaking to the disciples, verse 8, he says, and I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Confession, that's a verbal thing. Christ wants to know through our communication that we're committed to him. Would anyone know that you're in a relationship with Christ by the things that come out of your mouth? Would anyone know that you're in that covenant-type relationship, that marriage covenant with Christ, by the things that come out of your mouth? And I'm not just talking about not speaking foul language. I'm talking about talking about Jesus. I'm talking about sharing the gospel. We're supposed to be His bride. Imagine this. What if I never told you I was married to Elizabeth? I kind of like hid her. I didn't let her come to church. Uh, and I certainly never talked about her. You guys would be like, he wears a ring, but is he actually married? Is he married? And then when you asked me about it, I was like, yeah, 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 kind of. Yeah. Like, in all sincerity, if I never talked about Elizabeth or never shared that I was in that covenant marriage relationship, you would wonder whether I was married. Connect this to your relationship with Christ. If you don't talk about Jesus to people, if you don't tell people that you're married to Jesus, are you really married to Jesus? How does that really honor him? He says, confess me before man. That's not just a one-time thing. That's a regular thing. He wants us to confirm our covenant through our confession that we talk about him. If he's our groom and we love him that much, we should be talking about him to people. We should want people to know that we've entered into this covenant relationship with Christ. But it's not just about what we say. It's also about what we do. It's also about the way we live our lives. Are we showing this covenant relationship with Christ to the world by the way we live our lives. See, our lives will reveal our commitment one way or another. Our lives will reveal our commitment one way or another. Either I'm living for Christ and it's obvious that I'm committed to Christ. Or I'm not and people would question. They might confess, but their lives don't look like they're married to Jesus. They don't look like they're in that covenant relationship with the Lord. Our lives really... Tell people, and not just people, more specifically the Lord, how much we love Him. That's why He says in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> if you love me, do what I'm asked to do. If we love the Lord, we're going to do our best to do everything He's asking us to do. See, both of these things go hand in hand. 
We got to confirm the covenant commitment through confession, but also through what we do. Let's play this backwards uh, from what we said before, right? If we're not talking about being married, if we're not sharing Jesus or sharing about our spouse, if you will, for Christ. But what about saying wedding vows with our mouths? That's the confession but not living them out in our lives. See, when we say wedding vows, like, and I've done some weddings, people get so caught up with what they want to say because they want it to sound really nice. But it's, that's only half of it. That's the speaking part. This isn't just a confession thing. This is something that you're committing to do. This is a commitment. It's not just, I'm going to say something that sounds nice and gets people crying. No, this is something, vows are an action. They're, they're not just word vows are evidence of an action that you intend to fulfill. I don't think enough people actually think about the words that they say in a wedding vow. In sickness and in health, richer or poorer, all these different things. And, and, and when people write their own wedding vows, they say these powerful things. But are they living those things out? Is it true or is it just something that sounds good in the emotional moment? Both are important, the confession with our lips and the commitment through way, the way we live our lives. First Samuel chapter 20, verse 5. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked permission for me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. So... If you look at Numbers 28, you don't have to flip there, uh, verses 11 to 15, uh, they would have each new moon, um, they would have a, a special sacrifice. You remember, we've talked about this in the past, but uh, the Hebrews, they, they go off a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So each new moon, they would have a sacrifice. First day of the month, they'd have this, they'd have this sacrifice. It was the new moon. So they had this specific feast that was happening. David, because he's technically part of the royal family, he married into it. And not to mention he, before this was the general of Saul's army, he would obviously be expected to come to this feast. So he says, I'm not going to come to the feast. Tell my, tell Saul, tell your father that, that I had to go see my family from some other special sacrifice feast that we do and, and see how he's gonna respond. If he's like cool about it, like, like I know I'm good and maybe there's an opportunity or an open door for reconciliation. Uh, but if he gets angry, then I know I can't come back to the palace. I have to continue to hide. So he's trying to have Jonathan help set him up for success. How's your father gonna respond? Because you gotta think about it. This guy one minute he loves david the next minute he's throwing spears at him and he has this spirit that would come upon him um and 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 he would lash out in anger so he's completely unpredictable as far as david is concerned jonathan's uh he's sending jonathan basically to say what kind of saul uh is is he right now how is he going to respond in this specific instance so he sends jonathan 
to see how his father will respond to him, not for how will respond to David not being there. So it says in verse eight, therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? See, their covenant, the covenant that they made, was rooted in a relationship with the Lord. And Jonathan, what he does, is he confirms the reliability of that covenant based on the fact that it was rooted in their mutual love for the Lord. This is point number two. Covenants are only reliable if they're rooted in God. Covenants are only reliable if they're rooted in God. Our covenants with man are only reliable if they're rooted in God. What do I mean? Okay, why? If they don't believe in God, specifically say an atheist or something, if they don't believe in God, why would I trust what they're, what they're trying to say? They have no barometer for a moral standard. They have no actual reason to establish a standard of morality. So if if, if morality is relative, and this is what many will say, if, if morality or our standard of morality is relative, whatever you believe, yeah, go for it. Then how can truth be valued? How, how can morals be valued? Why would I trust someone who doesn't believe in the Lord? How could I? How could you? If they don't have that relationship with Jesus, what's their basis for speaking truth now obviously christianity isn't the only religion that believes in morals Uh, almost all religions do but what i'm getting at is that when someone has a relationship with the lord we have more of a reason to trust what they're saying why because in first corinthians chapter 13 it says love believes all things okay love believes all things What does that mean? It doesn't mean that I trust every person I run into. It doesn't even mean that I trust every believer. Love believes all things is ultimately this. I believe in you because I believe in the God that lives in you. I believe in the God that lives inside of you. And I believe in the God that you worship. And because of that, we have that like-mindedness. I know what your standard of living is, at least the standard that you strive for. Okay, I believe this person because I believe in the Lord that lives inside them. And when you look at this, covenants, as we talk about covenant the covenant of marriage and how our relationship with Christ is a picture of that. And we'll talk talk quite a bit about that throughout this teaching. But when you look at so many relationships, so many marriages that fail, many of them are rooted in the fact that they don't really have a relationship with God. If people truly don't have a relationship with God, the one that created marriage, the the one that brought the people together, then those relationships often fail because those covenants aren't rooted in a mutual love and respect and surrender to the living God. It goes on to say, 1 Samuel chapter 20, 
real quick that last part just to explain it. After he continues to confirm this covenant, he says, Nevertheless, this is David speaking, If there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? <laughs> He's like a, a, a last minute, uh, basically trying to set him up for success. He, 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 he wants to make sure that Jonathan is still on his side. And he's saying, basically, Jonathan, if you're working undercover for your father, just kill me now, okay? If you're working behind the scenes and you're really for him and you think what I've done is wrong, this iniquity is deserving of death, then I'd rather you kill me. Don't make me, you know, do the wild goose hunt thing and uh, just to find out that your father's going to kill me. We see, uh, despite this covenant, David is still like uncertain about everything. And that's what's so cool about Jonathan. He's going to encourage him to help him see that he can be confident in this covenant. It goes on in verse 9. This is what he does. But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? Once again, Jonathan reaffirms, Hey, I got your back. Uh, if my father says something, I will warn you. And then David thinks about it. He didn't really play this plan out completely in his head. It's like, wait a minute, you're going to be at the dinner. So if my if your dad gets mad at me because I'm not there, who's going to tell me? Like, how are we going to do this? How are you going to get the message to me? Because he knows that you're on my side. So he's probably going to be watching you after he communicates that to you, that he's going to come after David once again. So they're trying to develop this plan. How is the communication going to happen if Saul lashes out? Saul gets angry. Jonathan will come up with a plan. Let's read verse 11. And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness, when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, May the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan, in elaborating on this covenant, he gets into some of the details. But one thing he wants to point out and, and make sure of with David, he knows David is going to rule and reign. Remember, he gave him all his clothes and uh, basically eh, as an act of surrender to him as a king earlier back in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So he knows David is going to be the next king. He knows he's the rightful king. So he says, David, listen. <laughs> when you get put into power, don't take out my family. Okay, don't take out my descendants. Why? Because the cultural norm was if if you became king, you would wipe out the old king's entire family so that they wouldn't grow up and, and, and start a revolution and come against you and try to kill you. So what Jonathan is saying, hey, hey, David, I got your back, man. No matter what happens, I got you. Do me this favor. 
don't kill my family, specifically my children, when you come into power. Jonathan is absolutely confident that David is going to become a king. But there's another piece of this that I find important. In verse 15, it says, But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. He asked to make a covenant that lasted forever. That's point number three. Covenants are meant to be forever. Covenants are meant to be forever. Covenants aren't meant to be broken. And when you look at that, God, the author of covenants, if you will, he establishes that with us. He establishes an everlasting, eternal covenant. It says in Jeremiah chapter 32, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, he says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. He says, I make an everlasting covenant with them. Speaking about us, I'll make an everlasting covenant with my people across the board. I won't go back on my word. This is an eternal covenant. If Jesus is the way and his covenants are eternal, so, so too should ours be, right? Our, our covenants with each other should be forever. Our covenants with the Lord, they should be forever. And I think as a nation, we really get away from this. Especially in the context of marriage. The divorce rate is somewhere around 51% uh, right now. Last time I checked. So most people end up getting a divorce. And hey, I'm not speaking uh, uh, specifically on that topic. There's obviously uh, biblical um, uh, understanding in the Bible that, that, that says, hey, in certain circumstances, the Lord okays uh, getting divorces. So I'm not speaking of that specifically, but when we enter into a covenant, it's meant to last forever. Now, there was a law that was passed back in, I believe, 1969 called No Fault Divorce, okay? Now, it used to be that you could only get a divorce with someone for the three A's, uh, adultery, abandonment, or abuse. You couldn't get uh, a divorce unless you could prove that one or all of the above were happening. But back in 1969, they passed a law called no fault divorce, which basically says this. If you don't feel like being married anymore, in other words, you don't have to be married. Uh, irreconcilable differences, right? Uh, we're just not getting along anymore. So we had this everlasting covenant, but we're not going to follow through with it. We'll no longer be committed to each other. The covenant that we made, it was just a temporary thing, even though we said it was going to be forever. And when you look at this, honestly, when, when we look at all the issues that are going on in the world, this is one of the primary issues. Why? Because now the no-fault divorce thing, it, it really uh, is detrimental to the institution of marriage. And what happens is you have more divorces, which leads to more fatherless children, which leads to more crime. And I could show you so many studies that show this. And across the board, that's one of the biggest problems. Divorce, fatherless children, 
equals crime. It happens everywhere, not just in our country, but others as well. So when the government gives people a way out to uh, desecrate this this sacred union that God instituted, it literally causes the society to go nuts, to go crazy, to literally lead to their own destruction. The covenants that we make, when we make them, we have to have that anticipation that this is going to be forever, that this truly is an everlasting covenant. That's what Jonathan's saying to David. This is forever, man. No matter what, even if I die and my kids are still around, it's not just with me, but it's with the rest of my house. And we'll see David later on in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, verse 18. He's going, uh, he, he's going to reveal that, that he honors this covenant by taking in one of Jonathan's sons. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 16, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Point number four, covenants last when they're rooted in love. Covenants last when they're rooted in love. Their covenant was rooted in A sincere love for God and a sincere love for each other. He loved them as he loved his own soul. When we make covenants and they're rooted first in a faith in God and a love for God, but also a mutual love for each other, those are covenants that are bound to last. It says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 14, if you want to write it down, Colossians 3 verse 14, it says that love is the bond of perfection. (laughs) Love literally is the glue that holds it together. (laughs) It's literally the glue that holds the relationship together. So when that commitment or that covenant is rooted in love that bond is inevitable it's gonna happen this is what our covenant should be based on a mutual love for god and a mutual love for each other if they are then the last continue on first samuel chapter 20 Verse 18, then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target and there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on the side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are behind you. Go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. 
So this is the way Jonathan figured out how he could communicate to David. He knew walking up to David and having a conversation was putting his life in jeopardy because Saul would probably be watching him or having people watch him. So he uses he uses this uh, arrow trick. Essentially, he says, hey, depending, it doesn't matter where the arrows are, depending on what I say, listen to what I'm saying. If I shoot the arrows and I say they're to the side of you, that ultimately means Saul is on your side. Okay, if the arrows are on your side, that means Saul is on your side. But if I say the arrows are over you, that means you better go because he's not on your side and you need to flee. You need to get out of town. So David, he's going to be waiting in the woods for this communication. And I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. Imagine the anxiety. Imagine the intensity based on what Jonathan says about some arrows could change my life forever. It's either going to be a good thing or literally everything I know and love, my wife, the place I live, all of it, I got to go and I can't come back. This wouldn't, wouldn't have been a fun waiting period for David. <clears throat> very intense, very anxious. Jonathan, he tells him, <clears throat> go your way. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. He's continuing to try to encourage David in this covenant. I want you to stand on this promise. Me and God got your back. So no matter what, even if I say the arrows are are, are away, you need to run away. You need to go, go, go. Even if you hear the worst news of your life, I want you to remember the best news of your life. God's got your back, okay? No matter what, even after you even have to flee in the wilderness for years, which we know is going to happen, God's got you forever. He wants David to stand on this promise. And David will. Look what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 24. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat as at other times on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. So the first day of the feast, Saul assumes David's unclean. Now, when you look at Leviticus chapter 22, you can write this down. In Leviticus chapter 22, verses 3 to 7, uh, we see that... You weren't allowed to eat these sacred feasts if you were unclean. You could be unclean from touching a dead body, touching the creepy things, having sex. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that you could be unclean. Uh, But we see this uncleanness, it it, it only lasts for a day, okay? You'd go through a ceremonial cleansing process. Unless you did the same thing over again, you'd be good the next day. So Saul's thinking, okay, he's not going to be here today if he's unclean, but he should be here today tomorrow. This is so crazy to me. Saul's not thinking, David's not coming because I've been trying to kill him. (laughs) That's not not why David's coming to the feast. He's not coming to the feast because he's unclean. Like, this is madness. You see the madness of Saul. Where's David? Last time I checked, I was trying to kill him. Why why isn't he at the feast? He must be unclean or something. It's just like, you see this this madness going on in Saul's mind, and it gets worse and worse as we continue through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 27. 
And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know? It's your mom's fault. Do I not know? that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. So we remember David told him to tell this story. Hey, um, if, if your father gets uh, angry or he says anything, uh, if he addresses me not being there, just say that I'm back in Bethlehem. Now, we don't know if this is true or not. OK, David could have gone and visited his family during this time period. The text doesn't say we don't know if Jonathan's lying. When we look at Jonathan's character, he doesn't seem like a liar. But there's no way for us to know uh, as to whether or not this was a story that they made up or if David actually did go just say his final goodbyes to his family but we see the more important thing here is Saul's anger he was angry at his son Saul's anger was directed at David but now it's redirected at his son Jonathan and Saul's anger it's been building up it's been building up and building up and building up and guess what when anger's not dealt with, it gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Ephesians 4, 26, it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Why? Because undealt with anger today turns into wrath tomorrow. Undealt with anger today, it turns into bitterness tomorrow. And wrath and bitterness, it spreads like a disease it doesn't just affect us, it affects everyone around us. Even when we don't see it, it rubs off on other people. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 tells us. Hebrews 12 15, it says just that, paraphrase, bitterness, it, it spreads. And when you look at what Saul's bitterness is doing to his household, it's absolutely destroying it. Now he's got his, his daughter, at least one of them, who knows about the other children, his daughter and his son are against him now. They, they don't even want to be around him. They, they, they despise him. They don't respect him because this anger has just gotten to a place of no return because it wasn't dealt with. It wasn't dealt with when it first started. And that's what happens when we have unresolved issues, specifically as it pertains to anger, but really any issues, especially in the family, when they go undealt with, the bitterness comes. And then the animosity, and then the resentment, and then we're building cases against our family members because I didn't address this thing that happened today. So a month from now, now it's this thing that happened this day, and that other thing that happened Tuesday night, and this other thing that happened after church on Sunday, and now we built this case against this other individual, and you just blow up on them one day. Like, what? Like, why didn't we talk about this back then? That's why God says, don't let the... Sun go down on your wrath because that wrath is destructive. 
to any relationship. The sun continued to go down on Saul's wrath day in and day out. And it destroyed his family. We're called to, to look for, for peace, to look for resolution, to look for reconciliation. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're called to be people that pursue peace. We're called to be people that pursue reconciliation and resolution to deal with issues as they come up. Now that doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place for for conflict and, and healthy confrontation. But the ultimate goal of any conflict is to pursue peace. We don't have to agree on any, everything, but... But the hardest is to reconcile, to bring peace into that relationship. This is not something that Saul was very good at. He was not a peacemaker. So he says, I'll reread verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore sin and bring him to me for he shall surely die. Saul's angry because Jonathan doesn't want to kill David. What is wrong with you, son? You don't want to kill your best friend. Why? Again, the cultural norm was if you had a rival, you needed to wipe out that rival. Saul knows David's arrival. He's saying you need to wipe out David. In other words, his whole family so they don't revolt against us. But the cool thing about Jonathan, he's obviously not going to do this. Why? Because their covenant conquered their culture. Their covenant conquered their culture, meaning their covenant was greater than the cultural norms that they were surrounded with. And that's absolutely what covenants are supposed to be like in our lives. Covenants are supposed to conquer culture. What do I mean? When my culture around me says that having a covenant relationship with God is foolish, is dumb, who believes that fairy tale stuff, yada, 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 when they try to bash me for my faith and what I believe and say, hey, that was back then, but now we're here. Now, now things are different. Gay marriage is okay. It's okay to just get divorces. It's okay to have multiple partners. Polygamous relationships. You, you name it. When the culture says one thing's okay, Getting back to it, to what God says is okay. And if we're, if we're truly committed to that covenant relationship with the Lord, we're going to be confirmed to, conformed to His word and not our culture. It's become unpopular to keep our commitments to God, to spouses, even to children. It's become an unpopular thing. The cultural norm, it almost seems it's like covenants don't matter at all. These commitments to relationships, they actually mean nothing. At least that's the direction that we're going in. Jonathan, he didn't conform to the culture. He conformed to the covenant that he made between him and David that was rooted ultimately in the relationship with the Lord. So... Again, Saul says, send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. He's saying David should surely die 
But what did he say in the last chapter? He made a covenant too. Remember? 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 6. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And now he's saying, let's kill him. Point number five, covenants not rooted in God are easily broken. Covenants not rooted in God are easily broken. This was easy for Saul to break this covenant because he didn't have a relationship with the Lord. When people don't have a sincere relationship with God, as I was mentioning earlier, it's hard to believe what they say. Why Why should they keep their covenant? On what moral basis should they keep their word? And you hear people swear to God all the time, right? You hear people swear to God all the time. What does that even mean? What does it mean? You hear people swear to God that don't even believe in God or, or they certainly don't have a relationship with God. People that believe in God, that, that uh, the Christian God, the true God, the living God, they don't swear to God, right? You guys don't swear to God, right? We're good, right? No, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> we shouldn't swear to God. The Lord says, don't add words to your yeses and noes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But we see the consequences of, of trusting in man's covenant, covenants when, when they're not rooted in a relationship with the Lord. They're bound to be broken, just as we see with Saul. Also, wasn't the answer that they were looking for, but they got an answer that they were seeking out, right? The whole point of David sending Jonathan to this feast and saying this thing was so that he could find out if Saul was for him or against him. Obviously, he's out to kill him. He got the answer. Not the answer he was looking for, but it's still the truth. So it goes on. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 32. And Jonathan answered his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Jonathan, he, he stands up for righteousness. He realizes that the family of faith, that bond is tighter than the family of blood. This isn't about the family of blood. This is about the family of God. And David is part of my family because we both love God. So he chooses David over his own father because that relationship, because of that mutual love and respect for the Lord, that bond was greater than the bond that he had with his father. So he sticks up for David. Why should he be killed? What has he done? So then Saul, look what he does. Verse 33. Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Saul is so enraged that he attempts to kill his own son. Like this is crazy. This is absolute madness. See, see Saul. I, 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 he keeps coming up. See, Saul... Um, he wasn't interested in the truth. He had already said in his heart that I want to kill David. He doesn't care what Jonathan has to say. Last time he heard Jonathan out and Jonathan convinced him that he was making a bad decision. So he's probably going, I don't want Jonathan to convince me that I'm making a bad decision. I don't care if it's a bad decision. I want David dead. It was already in his heart to have David killed. It wasn't about knowing the truth, whether David deserved to be killed or not. He just wanted him killed. This is another typology of Christ, right? They, they weren't seeking for the truth. The religious leaders that had Jesus put to death, they didn't want to know the truth. They just wanted him put to death. That's why they brought false witness after false witness against them so that they could fulfill their own agenda. It wasn't about seeking truth. It was about making happen what they wanted to make 
happen. So Saul, he throws a spear at his son. Now, I don't recall any instance where Saul Saul throws his spear and it hits someone. I'm sure it happened in battle, but not with David and Jonathan. We could look at that. Man, maybe you should try a different tactic, right? Like, if he really wants to kill someone, maybe he should use a different weapon. Uh, but ultimately, we know it's not Saul's inaccuracy. It's Yahweh's protection over both David and Jonathan. Verse 34. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. We can understand this. His father shamed him, embarrassed him, and tried to kill him. Verse 35, and so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out in the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And the lad ran, he shot an arrow behind him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrows, the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow behind you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, making haste, Hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. So exactly what Jonathan said he was going to do. Despite the obvious risks, his father just tried to kill him. If he finds out that he's talking to David, he's probably going to have him dead, okay? He's, he's almost killed his son twice so far in the story. So Saul doesn't have a problem with killing Jonathan. Despite the risks, Jonathan follows through with his commitment. He follows through with his covenant. This is the final point. Point number six. Covenants are confirmed by follow through. Covenants are confirmed by follow through. See, Jonathan didn't just say all this stuff. Whatever you need me to do, David, I'll do it. I got your back, yada, yada. It's me, you, and Yahweh all the way. He didn't just say these things. He followed through exactly what he told David he was going to do. He did. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Matthew 5, 37, it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That doesn't just mean say yes or say no. It says, no, do yes or, or do no. Do what you're saying you're going to do. If you say you're going to do something, follow through with it. Do you follow through with your commitments? Do you do the things that you tell people you're going to do? Whether that's with your, with your family, children, spouses, any loved ones, friends, co-workers, whatever the case may be, do you do what you say that you're going to do? What about with the Lord? Do you follow through with the commitments that you make to Him? Do you tell the Lord, hey, I'm going to do this or I'm going to work on this and then just kind of gets brushed under the rug, you, you kind of forget about it or do we follow through with those commitments that we make? If we make a commitment with our mouths, but we don't with our actions, show the follow through, then what is the commitment? It's it's nothing. It's just words. It's just air. It's just sound. But it has no substance. There has to be follow through with the covenants that we make. Jonathan was a man that backed up his word. Here we'll finish out. Verse 41. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place from a place toward the south, fell on his face on the ground and bowed down three times and they kissed one another and they wept together. 
but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. David's whole life just changed in one instant. His whole life, he was like the right-hand man of Saul. He was the captain. He was the general of the army. Everybody loved him. He had support all around him. He was married. Life was good. And then gone. All of it in an instant. He was forced to forsake all. He was forced to forsake all and just be with the Lord. Now, when we look at our covenant relationship with God, specifically with with christ uh when when we make that commitment when we enter into that covenant that's what it's going to supposed to look like he says just that in luke chapter 14 verse 33 in luke 14 33 he says Whoever of you does not forsake all is not worthy to be my my disciple. Whoever of you doesn't forsake all to follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. The covenant comes with the expectation that we're going to forsake all, or at least we're willing to forsake all, and we do forsake all that the Lord asks us to forsake. That's part of it. This is what that covenant is supposed to look like. And you think about it, He's not asking us to do something that he didn't do. He forsook all to pursue us. We should forsake all to pursue him. Think about it. He left his kingdom. He left his kingdom in pursuit of us. And he asks us to just let go of some worldly things to pursue him. It's like not even a comparison. The things that he forsook, suck, forsook <laughs> for our sake. I don't think forsook's a word. <laughs> so jonathan once again verse 42 he says go in peace since we have both sworn in the name of the lord saying may the lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever so he arose and departed and jonathan went into the city jonathan he reminds him of the eternal covenant that he made with him This is also a picture of the covenant that God has made with us. He says, go in peace. Why? Because you can stand on the covenant. You can stand on the promise that I made to you. You have nothing left. Nothing. You don't have any more friends. You don't have any more family. You don't have any more possessions. But you got one thing, the promise. You got the covenant. And you can count on the covenant. You can't count on anything else other than the covenant that I've made with you. And in that, you can have peace. Think about this. Go in peace. I just lost everything. Yeah, go in peace because we got this covenant. And this thing's going to last forever. You can be confident in this. So David, he arose and departed. As great as this covenant was that Jonathan made with him, it wasn't Jonathan's covenant with David that got him through all his years in the wilderness, all his years in in caves and fleeing from Saul. It was God's covenant with David that got him through all this. It, It was God's word. It was God's promises. And we see that throughout the Psalms. That's what David stood on the entire time, the covenant that God made with him. We're able to move forward as David did with confidence knowing that God will never forsake his covenant with us. He'll never forsake it. That's why he tells us in Hebrews 13.5 Hebrews 13.5 
I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's something that we can be so confident in. That, that's something that, that he'll never, well, I didn't mean for you. Or I didn't mean in this specific circumstance. No, that's never going to happen. That covenant is from everlasting to everlasting. He will always be there with us in that we can rise, we can depart, we can walk, we can move forward because we're confident in the covenant that he's made with us. When life seems unfair, when you've been beat up, when things aren't going so well, issues at home, issues at work, issues just seem like all over the place. You can't get away from the issues, losing things. We can always stand firm in that covenant that Christ made with us. And often he'll allow those things to happen in our life just to build confidence in us not in our circumstances, but in the covenant that he made with us. What are you standing on? Are you standing on these waves of life, these storms of life that keep changing over and over again? Or are we standing on the covenant that Christ made with us? And we can't forget that he sealed this covenant with his blood. With his blood, he sealed this covenant. He's so committed to fulfilling everything that he communicates about. In regards to this covenant. But that's only half of it. The covenant that he made with us. The other half is the covenant that we've made with him. He will always be faithful to fulfill the commitment that he's made to us. But but are we being faithful to fulfill the commitment that we made with him? Again, the Bible likens this relationship as he being the groom and we being the bride. He is a perfect groom, a perfectly faithful groom. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him. There's nothing that will ever tell us that he won't back up with actions. But are we being a good bride? Often, men especially, read that Ephesians chapter 5 and and look how, how a wife's called to submit to her husbands. But the context is the parallel is the 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 um the message is yes that relationship between a husband and wife yeah yeah husbands are are called to spiritually lead their wives and wives are called to to submit to their husbands but we can't forget that we're the wife too every single one of us and we're called to submit to the groom each and every person male or female we're called to be completely surrendered and submitted to christ are we respecting that covenant are we honoring that are we being faithful to it if you look at your life with christ you look at that relationship and you compare it to a marriage because that's what it is are you fulfilling it Are there holes in it? Are there things, hey, I'm not really telling people about him. I'm not really following through with the things that I've committed to him. This relationship, man, if this was a marriage, this would be a horrible marriage. If this really was a marriage, because it really is, this would be a broken home. Our commitment to Christ is the most important commitment we can ever make. And it's supposed to be a marriage. What does your marriage with Christ look like? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the covenants you make with us. How you're so faithful to honor them. Every single word that comes out of your mouth, we can be confident that you'll follow through and and fulfill those words.
And Lord, I pray that it would be the same for us, that this covenant that we've entered into with you, this relationship that we've entered into with you, Lord, this marriage, that we would honor it, Lord, that we would, we would be excited about telling people about our groom. We'd be excited about living for our groom and, and honoring him, Lord, and, and that you would be glorified through that, that you would look at our marriage with you and say, that's a pretty good marriage. God, so we love you so much that you would call us your bride. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to act like it. In your name, amen.